Welcome. It is my great joy to welcome you today to City Reach LA. My name is Josh Houston. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series for the month of March called The Problem of Sin. You know, our culture doesn't really like to talk about sin. Um, it's a little distasteful, uh, maybe even offensive at times. But Jesus liked to talk about sin. His followers talked about sin. The Bibles we hold and read today talk about sin. So this month, we're talking about sin. And here's how I'm framing sin. At a foundational level, sin is what destroys wholeness. It's mindsets, it's behaviors, it's worldviews, it's values that break down wholeness, the shalom, the, the peace, the wholeness that God intends for our lives. Two weeks ago, I talked about how sin convinces us that choosing destruction is worth it, that our choosing into the breakdown of our wholeness will satisfy our souls, so we settle for it. Last week, I talked about how sin causes suffering, that if you're human, you will suffer in some capacity, and that those who deny or bury or self-medicate that pain, they get smaller, they get bitter, but those who go through their suffering, feeling all of it, they give themselves capacity to transcend it, and then to include that pain, to include that suffering into their story of redemption. I encourage you to go back and listen to the last two messages if you missed them today, I want to talk about temptation, uh, because you can't really do the sin conversation without talking about temptation. Um, here's the thing. In my experience, most people don't want destruction. Most people are not hoping for destroyed lives. They don't want their wholeness broken down. They're not hoping and craving for devastation in their lives. But we still choose sin. We still choose actions. We still choose mindsets and behaviors that break down our wholeness. Why? Why would we intentionally choose decisions that deteriorate the greatness that we were built for? The answer is we're tempted. Temptation is the attractive component to sin. You see, it's not sin that's alluring. Sin itself is not alluring. There's actually nothing enticing about a slow, agonizing death of your wholeness. That, there's no draw to that. Temptation is what's captivating. Temptation is, is the mistaken short-term win. The, the small compromise on our way to annihilation. And I want to shoot straight with you. Temptation just plain sucks. It sucks. The cards dealt to us, it sucks. You get something dangled in front of your face that may even peer, appear beneficial for your life. Yet these temptations are deliberately designed to destroy your wholeness. This life you're living is not random. It, this is not mere chance. It's not meaningless. You were created for and by a being who cares for you in ways you will never comprehend. We will never have capacity to comprehend. I don't even think in eternity we'll fully grasp it. And you're despised by a being that is attempting to rob you of every good thing waiting for you, of every good thing designed for you. And as long as you're on this side of eternity, on this side of death, you will not stop being tempted. It's not going to happen. No matter how holy, no matter how righteous you become, it's not going to let up. How do we know this? Even Jesus was tempted. The perfect man, the sinless man, was tempted as we are. It's never going to let up. In fact, the, end of your, the enemy of your soul may turn up the heat as you grow. He, make, he may make it more hard for you as you grow in health and well-being and, and maturity. They say higher levels, higher devils. That sucks. Some people pray, God, please take this temptation away from me. If you just remove this temptation, I'll be good. 
That's not how it works, though. We're caught in the middle of a war. Satan is simply trying to destroy what God made and what God loves. He just wants to break you down to get at God. He's not going to take a break for you. So if the temptation is never going to let up, what needs to change? Us. We got to figure out how to get better at responding to it or we're never going to survive the war. So here's my plan this morning. I want to show you a few things this guy James wrote about regarding temptation and sin. And then I want to give a few, t- a few suggestions for how to survive temptation. Does that sound okay? If it doesn't, Tom, you can leave. Bam. I'm just joking. I don't know why. I, I, don't, so I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. I love you. I love you. Today I'm preaching a message entitled Surviving Temptation. <laughs> surviving temptation. Hey, I married you. You have to stick around here, right? Okay, okay. (laughs) I did your wedding. I officiated your wedding. I love you, Tom. Preaching a message today entitled Surviving Temptation. If you brought your Bible or your Bible app, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of James. It's towards the end of our Bible. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. If you don't own a Bible... We have Bibles on these little tables around here. You can take one of those home. I'll have the text up on the screen as well. A little context here. Um, James is very likely, most likely, he's a, a bro- actual a sibling of Jesus. He's one of Jesus' half-brothers. Um, so he gets a little street cred for that, just a little bit. And he's writing to early Jewish Christians, and much of his pastoral care, much of his pastoral counsel is regarding wisdom. It's regarding um, figuring out how to deal better with destructive behaviors and mindsets. So this is where we're jumping in, starting in chapter 1, and we're going to jump in on verse 13. This is what James writes. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I want to start with an important distinction. I think there's a significant difference between external trial and internal temptation. I think we need to note that from the get-go. Trials are typically the result of an outside external source beyond our control, and they're intended to be endured with, with faith. They're intended to be endured with faith. In fact, trials test our faith, and they develop perseverance in us. They mature our faith. They mature us. They're meant to cultivate our character. Right before these verses, if you look just right before these verses, James is talking about the testing of our faith, how it produces endurance in us. It it produces perseverance in us, and that builds maturity. That builds wholeness. So while you may not think so now, trials are actually good for you. Temptations, on the other hand, They come from inner moral tension, and that roots from our ungodly desires. They appeal, temptations appeal to our unwholesome desires, sex outside the boundaries of marriage, prestige or advancement at at your work, a dysfunctional relationship with your possessions, an addiction to alcohol or social media or shopping. What they do is they, they charm your cravings for things intended to destroy you. Trials are a part of life. Sometimes they're even brought by God. But temptations are from the enemy. 
Satan loves to use temptation to stir up these evil desires in us, maybe we didn't even know are in us, in order to debilitate our wholeness. And what James wants these early Christians to recognize is where temptation is coming from. He writes, God does not get tempted by evil, and he does not tempt us with evil. What's he getting at? We don't get to escape the responsibility of our sin by blaming God for temptation. God's nature, God's holiness, mean that there's nothing inside of his character that appeals to sin, which means he's not going to be a source of temptation. And this leads to an issue that I want to highlight this morning, which is avoiding responsibility. Since the beginning of humanity, men and women have been blaming everybody but themselves. Just blaming everybody but themselves for our giving into temptation. Some blame God. He's testing me too much. Or God made me in such a way that I'm, I'm more susceptible than everybody else to this. Others blame Satan. He just won't leave me alone. He won't give me a break for a week. This guy won't, this thing won't give me a break for a week. That's why I continue to fall. Others blame their friends. They blame their acquaintances. They blame their enemies. I just can't seem to buck this sin because person X won't help me out. Or person X, they're evil and they just keep doing stupid stuff to me. That's why I fail. For example, take Adam and Eve. Going all the way back to the beginning. Page three of scripture, after they eat of the fruit, God says, don't eat that fruit. They eat that fruit. And he's like, guys, what happened? Adam blames God and he blames Eve. (laughs) It was the woman who gave me the fruit and you gave me the woman. God says, Eve, what happened? It was the snake. It was the serpent that you put here. It's always somebody else's fault. Or how about the Shawshank Redemption? It's one of my favorite films. Whenever somebody gets into prison, they ask somebody, what are you in here for? They get the same response every time. Everybody's in, everybody in here is innocent. Didn't you know that? Everybody's innocent. We justify our behavior by blaming someone else. We even justify our wrongdoing by blaming our challenging circumstances. But James is like, I'm not going to have any of this, guys. Own up to your fallenness. You sin because you have evil desires. It's in your heart. Because here's the logic we believe into. When, when trouble, the trouble that I'm experiencing, whatever trouble it is that I'm experiencing, it's been caused by someone else or something else. Therefore, someone else needs to provide a solution for me. But responsible humans, <laughs> responsible humans learn how to assume responsibility. They take the responsibility up rather than avoid it. They take ownership rather than constantly blace, placing blame on others on their circumstances, on God. And then what responsible humans do is they take initiative to do something about the problem too. Not just complaining about it, not just hoping it goes away, not just hoping somebody else deals with it, taking initiative to actually do something about it. And our default, what we do is we tend to either minimize or, or magnify a problem. So we minimize it. What we do is we refuse to treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. It's not that big of a deal. So we rationalize, it doesn't really need to be dealt with. It's not that big of a sin. Or we magnify it. Even if I gave this thing my best effort, it wouldn't do anything to help. So we rationalize in the end, it's going to be a waste of time to even give any attention to this thing. The point I'm trying to make here, and I believe James is as well, 
is that the temptations you're wrestling with, they're not God's fault. They're not your parents' fault. They're not your co-workers' fault. They're not even Satan's fault. They're yours. You are broken. You are full of flaw. You are ultimately sinful. We all are. This is what the gospel of grace is. You suck. That's why you need Jesus. We are broken. That's why we need saving. We do not get permission to blame anybody but ourselves for our sin. And as we try to locate the source of our fallenness, if we tr- the extent to which we are trying to find the source of our fallenness externally, it will distract us from what the real problem is, which is ourselves. Our hearts are dirty. Our desires are not as pure as we'd like them to be. We crave things that destroy wholeness. If we won't accept our utter need for salvation, we will never receive salvation. That sounds duh, but I want to say that again. If we won't accept our utter need for salvation, we won't receive salvation. Salvation meaning new life. It's life made whole. It's life redeemed in eternity and here and now too. It includes both. Salvation is here. It's for here too. That's why we're going to start working with the, the Harvest Home. New life. We get to help people develop and cultivate new life. We're jumping into that. But if you can't figure out how to admit you need new life now, if you can't admit you need redeemed life and whole life, you'll never receive that new life. The reason that we're enticed by sin is because we have toxic desires. We have to own up to this. Verse 14 says, Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now, another important distinction. The problem here is not desire. There's nothing intrinsically toxic about desire. The problem is desire that stands in opposition to God's desires for us. Because God's desires for our lives are about wholeness. They're about completeness. They're about perfection. They're about good. They're about peace. It's about shalom for us. We have desires that stand in opposition to those desires. Satan is so cunning. He knows very well how to entice us with things that appear good, that even appear natural, but after we've locked on, they drag us away. So think of fishing. Fish are not enticed to bite a sharp hook. They don't just swim around and see a shiny hook and bite it. Those ones don't exist, right? Like evolution killed those ones off. Smart fish don't bite sharp hooks trying to take them away. So this is what a fisherman does. He puts on the hook something that appears natural, something that appears like something the fish actually needs to survive, a worm, an insect. In fact, sometimes the bait is calculated, even created for that specific type of fish. And as the fish sees the bait, it's enticed as it watches the lure, maybe even the live bait, dance in front of it. And when it bites down, the hook sets, and it's literally dragged away by its desire. And a temptation put before you, it's like that. It's like bait. It's cleverly selected to match your known desires. Deliberately chosen, maybe even created to end you. And here's the progression James describes. Death is the consequence of all this. Desire leads to sin. Sin leads to death. Temptation 
It's, it's appealing to our unwholesome desire. And instead of running from it, we lean into it. We play with the thought of satisfying that desire. And our minds begin to create this imaginative, tr- imaginative reality that we end up making our reality. And then sin is born. And, and I want another, another important distinction here. I don't think we're to be blamed for the presence of temptation either. Temptation is not sin. No matter how mature, no matter how healthy you become, you will be tempted for the rest of your life. You do, however, get to decide what you do with that temptation, how you respond to that temptation. Will you allow unhealthy desire to formulate a plan? Will you give in to that toxic desire and act on it? See, our problem is not temptation. Our problem is actually the unwholesome desires of our hearts. Like lust, it's a powerful thing. But lust is not actually to blame. Our hearts are to blame. What are you going to do when that first thought comes into your mind? Pride. It's powerful. But pride's not to blame. Our hearts are. What are you going to do when you accidentally judge another in your heart? What are you going to act on this now? Are you going to continue to maintain that thought? Unforgiveness. It's brutal. But how are you going to respond when someone chooses to cut you? That's that's our job. This stuff is not going to let up. What's to blame is our hearts. Sin is the result of this disjointed, fractured desire that conceives. And when it's full grown, sin gives birth to death. And I, lo- I love the birth imagery here that James uses. So temptation, what it does is it prompts desire. It sends out this invitation to your heart, to the, to the dirty, nasty stuff of our hearts. It just like, it sends out this invitation, hey, why don't you come? And, and that seduced heart, it results in this like little menacing child that James calls sin. And then when sin grows up, it starts its own little family, starts having its own little kids, and it creates this evil baby that James calls death. And by death, we're not talking about just the end of a person's existence on earth. It's not just stopping breathing. Like when Jesus talked about eternal life, when he talked about abundant life, he was not just talking about heaven and eternity. He was talking about here and now too. Death is not reserved for the afterlife either. By your decision-making now, You experience life and death now. Either this slow movement forward in health, in progress, in wholeness, or this slow, steady swallowing up of your life into death. I know this is kind of heavy this morning, right? I know. Sin's not messing around. This stuff destroys us. I know there's times for for joyful, abundant, fun conversations, and other times we need to sink into the reality of we're caught in a war for your heart. How does this stuff happen? It's compromised. Satan loves to train us in small compromises. Just give in just a little. Just give in a little more. And doesn't it feel good to give in sometimes? Just to be taken over by our temptations, by our desires, it feels good. He's not stupid. Satan is not stupid. He knows you're not going to throw your life away with one sweeping act. He knows I'm not going to do heroin today. That would be a dumb temptation for me because it does not appeal to my desires. What's he going to do? He's going to tempt me with these small compounding acts that are perfectly suited for my unique destruction. He's so clever. This is a slippery slope. And what he does is he intentionally leaves out the end game. He wants to keep that plan hidden from us. And James is bringing light to this. Temptation, it amuses your evil desires. And your evil desires, they manufacture sin. And sin establishes death as your reality. 
We're not just dropped into death. It's this slow, steady drift. Think of that movie, Castaway, when his friend Wilson falls off the boat. He's floating away, and he wakes up, and he's like, Wilson, right? How did he get there? He drifted away. Wilson didn't get chucked. He slowly drifted away. It's a slow, steady drift. This, it's a patient, unhurried attack. But one day, you wake up, and you're like, my life is not as it was supposed to be. You ever hear anybody say that? How the heck did I get here? How, how did I get here? The result is, is of a slow, steady drift. It's one compromise of integrity after the next. One compromise of integrity after the next. And you wake up and you're like, I don't even know how I got here. From the temptation of our evil desires to sin to death. The death of our relationships, the death of our finances, the death of our passions, of our hope of our integrity, of our faithfulness, of our generosity, of our love. Giving into sinful nature, giving into temptation will lead you down a road of every day dying to the life you were created for. Dying to the wholeness that God intends for your life. That's a dark message. <laughs> I'm not just trying to be emo today. What do we do? <laughs> right? What do we do with this? What hope do we have? On this side of eternity, we're never going to stop being tempted. Our evil desires are going to drag us into sin, into death. What, what are we supposed to do? What hope? So what I'm going to do is I want to submit just three simple suggestions for surviving temptation. The first one, flee from it. Flee. When you're tempted, get the heck out of there. Escape. Skedaddle. Vamos. Go. I know that sounds puny, right? What about these verses that are like, we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, right? What about all this stuff? Yes, it's true. We should not fear the enemy because we're on the winning team. We're on the winning side here. But all throughout Scripture, we see instruction to get away from temptation, not to forcefully try to tough it out. Get away. What this demands then is, it, is understanding the difference between trial and temptation. One you lean into, the other one you run from. Again, again, James is pretty clear at the beginning of chapter 1, the first few verses of here, that, that God is going to use difficult circumstances to help mature you. Sometimes he brings them, other times he allows them. It's always in order to shape our hearts, to form us into something bigger and greater. But what we tend to do is we run away from situations that are meant to develop us. You guys know what I'm talking about? We tend to flee from the things that we actually need the most, those situations that are transforming us and forming us into healthy, whole individuals. We say, my boss, he's impatient, he's rude, he's a jerk, this compassionless jerk. What am I going to do? I'm just going to quit. Maybe your boss is a gift from the Lord to help develop your patience that you're going to need five years from now. Well, that sucks. I don't want that. I mean, what do we want here? Do we want easy lives or we do, want, do we want wholesome lives? Just because something is difficult doesn't mean it's harmful. In trials, what we want to do is lean into the situation to find out what God is up to in our hearts. But temptations are a totally different ballgame. They are purposed to distract you from what God is doing in your heart, and they require a completely different response. Trials... They demand we lean into them. Temptations, they demand that we flee from them. And as a pastor, I find that some people are uniquely skilled at doing the wrong thing. It's fascinating. They flee from trials. 
so good at, and they lean into temptations, but then they wonder why their lives are a mess. If Satan is attempting to destroy my marriage, he's sending some hoochie skirt-wearing Jezebel that's going to try to, like, wedge herself in between Amanda and me, right? The last thing I want to do is lean into that situation, right? You know, I think I'm going to take up Delilah on her invitation to go over to her house and watch some Netflix and eat some brownies together. No, stupid. I want to see what God's doing in my heart right now. No, get out of there. What are you doing? Get the heck out. Flee. Temptations are meant to destroy you, not build your character. (laughs) Scripture says resist the devil. Scripture says flee from evil desires. It says that when you're tempted, God's going to provide a way out, not a way to stay longer in. When you find yourself in the midst of temptation, get the heck out of there. Change your activity. Go hang out with somebody else. Or do what Dan loves to do in awkward situations. Just literally run away. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Just run away. (laughs) Flight or fight with temptation? Flight. (laughs) It's stronger than you. No matter how strong you think you are, you are one bad decision away from ruining your life. Never forget that. Flee from temptation. Secondly, ask God to change your heart. Ask God for a heart change. In order to stand a chance against temptation, we have to first assume assume responsibility for our fallenness. I am a sinner in need of grace today. Josh Houston is a sinner in need of grace today. I'm broken. I have toxic, evil, harmful desires in my heart, and I need God to change me. If we don't start there, temptation will have its way with us. We just will not survive this war. And the acknowledgement of my need for saving is what gives God space to transform me. My acknowledgement up front, God, I need you to save me. That's what creates the foundation for God to come in and transform my heart. You ever realize that you can't just change your desires? We can't just transform ourselves. If you want to test it out, go for it. Think of the most selfish, dark, nasty part of you. Now just stop. Don't do it anymore. Don't be that anymore. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. You don't have the power to just get that out of your life. Our desires have to be replaced by the God who made our hearts. That happens through this daily giving of permission over to, of my heart over to him. This yielding of my heart, my desires, to allow transformation to happen in me. We have to give God permission to change what we want to resemble what he wants. This is what the heart change looks like. The unfortunate part is that that doesn't just magically happen. I wish it did, but the great majority of the time, he gives us opportunities to grow. Oh, you're not a patient person? Here's that jerk boss. (laughs) Try it out. You want to be patient? Be patient. (laughs) You want to be like me? I'm very forgiving. I'm going to allow this person to come cut you pretty hard. God, I want, I want to be like you. Go do it. <laughs> and it's in the act of doing it that we become more like him. God transforms our heart by participating with what he's like. And this is my experience. God loves to use everything in our lives as mirrors to reflect back to us what is broken. Your job, your relationships, your material possessions, your circle of friends, a hummingbird, the ocean. 
coffee, that all of it would be used to reflect back to you the type of person that you are so that you can recognize how you don't resemble Jesus. Because those are the places that we invite God into. It's easy to just say, God, fix me. Just transform me. What he wants is for you to say, no, look how selfish you are. Can I have that? Oh, can you move to something a little easier? I want to try something a little, a little softer first. Look how greedy you are. I want that. He does it by reflecting back to you, by reflecting back to us what does not resemble his heart so that we can offer it to him to change. In order to survive temptation, we have to create this discipline of asking God to change our hearts so that our evil desires can be transformed into his desires. And this is when he gives us the desires of our hearts. You think he wants to give you the evil desires of your hearts? No. You think a good father's going to give you the toxic desires of your hearts? No. What's he going to do? He wants to transform your desires to his desires. Then the things that you want are the things that he wants. He'll give you everything you want. It's got to start with, God, here's my heart. Transform me. I'm broken. I'm dirty. Transform my heart so that the things that I used to crave that are damaging to me, I want them to appear repulsive to me now. But you can't do that to yourself. What we can change is how we respond to temptation, but that we are tempted, that my heart loves Evil, that's a hard issue. I can't change that. I can't transform that. It's just got to be offered up. Transformation's in God's hands. So ask God to change your heart. And then thirdly, in temptation, fix your gaze on Jesus. Fix your gaze, your focus on Jesus. I believe that these verses we walk through today call for a decision about where you will place your focus, about where you're going to place your attention. You can do it on yourself. You're deeply flawed. You could put your attention on others. They're also deeply flawed. You could put them on your circumstances. You could put them on temptation. It's like a moving target trying to keep your eyes on this stuff. You could put it on, on Satan, who's the one tempting you. I think that's what he loves to do is get our eyes off Jesus, though. Or you could put him on Jesus, who is your only hope of survival in this thing. The, the, the author of Hebrews, another book in the New Testament, he wrote this. Or she wrote this. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles you. Persevere. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. You want to stand a chance against temptation? Set your gaze on the one who created you. Or look at David, the writer of many of the Psalms. And in some of his songs, what he writes is magnify the Lord. To magnify something, it means to enlarge it or to enhance it, to overstate it to overemphasize something, but it's difficult to magnify something without looking at it. And what I've experienced is that things appear bigger as you're watching them. Things appear greater as your eyes are focused in on them. Our problems seem bigger than they are simply because we keep our eyes fixed on them. Our anxiety feels more potent because we're giving this issue more attention than it actually deserves. But as you learn to consistently turn your gaze to Jesus in temptation, you grow in understanding his greatness. And you grow in understanding his love despite your desires. You grow in understanding his power over sin. Jesus, 
the author, the perfecter of your faith. Fix your gaze on him and then watch temptation temptation lose its power over your life. Fascinating. When I keep my eyes fixed on my temptation, this thing gets really big. Jesus gets really small. When I keep my eyes focused on Jesus, he gets really big. This thing starts to, to, to dwindle. It starts to lose its power in my life. How do we survive temptation? We flee from it. We ask God to change our hearts. And we fix our gaze on Jesus. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to go and do a little response time here. To wrap this up, I want to turn it outward. I think that our learning to deal well with temptation impacts people around us. Your decision to fix your gaze on Jesus during temptation, it becomes instrumental in helping others fix their gaze on Jesus during temptation. I tell this story in my book about this time that I was at an Angel, Angels baseball game with my dad. Um, it was a church event. And it was a bunch of people that went. We're sitting in one of the high sections. My dad and I were sitting up at like the very, very top. And we had a bag of peanuts. And we were just having a blast chucking them at our friends way below, right? And, you know, like it'd be like 20 rows down. And we just like nail somebody in the head. It was awesome, right? And they're like, what? Every once in a while, though, you get this like random peanut that you throw it. And it would hit a stranger, <laughs> Right? This rogue peanut just kind of goes flying and nails a random person that I did not intend. And they look up holding the back of their head, right? What do we do? We grab the back of our head and we look behind us too, right? You believe that jerk up there throwing peanuts? Like, what the heck, right? <laughs> like, I got nailed by a rogue peanut too. What the heck is going on here? In a similar way. <laughs> After getting hit in the head <laughs> by these metaphorical rogue peanuts... <laughs> People in your life are looking to you for a response. Where do you look? Where do you encourage them to fix their gaze? On their crappy circumstances? On their problems? On someone else in their life? On the demonic? Or do you point above? (laughs) Do you point beyond you and turn their attention to the author and the perfecter of their faith? Their only hope for survival. To survive temptation, you flee from it and you ask God to change your heart and you fix your gaze on Jesus. And then you watch how Jesus uses you to point other people to him. It's fascinating. Because this isn't just about you. The enemy wants to make this only about you. It's not just about you. It's about people in your life too. Point to him. This is where we keep our eyes fixed. So Jesus, we do that right now in this moment. In this time of response, in song, we fix our gaze on you, God. And some of us are just being belittled. We're being abused by sin. We're being abused by temptation, God. And some people are probably in the middle of seasons that are just beating the crap out of them, God. And I pray that you would give them courage to fix their eyes on you during this season. So God, whatever it is that you're doing in their hearts right now, our church's hearts right now, God, I pray that you'd give them the courage to respond to that, to say yes to what your work is. Help us, God. Help us. We need saving.